Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we'll begin in Genesis and end in Revelation this morning, developing a, a biblical theology of marriage. The Bible is a book that begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve, and it is a book that ends with a marriage between Christ and His people. So marriage becomes a key analogy to understanding God's plan to save His people and even God's purpose for the world. Uh, We enjoy uh, preaching through books of the Bible, but occasionally, especially when uh, we're in between books like we are now, um, we also enjoy addressing topics that our members have asked us about over time. And as the elders sat down uh, in the early parts of this year, a number of our members had been expressing a desire to receive specific instruction on marriage. And so here we are seeking to lay a foundation on which you can keep building uh, and use in discipling each other. But I don't want to give the impression that this is a series for married people only. Uh, far from it. Not only will we uh, devote one of those, uh, these four weeks to singleness uh, in particular, but a lot of what we cover about marriage has implications for every Christian, uh, no matter what place they may find themselves currently. And I, and I hope to show you today that marriage is really a picture that has something to do with every one of us in here. It's also true that marriage has been under attack in our culture recently, um, On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court imposed a mandate that redefined marriage for all 50 states. The Supreme Court declared same-sex marriage, or so they call it, uh, to be a constitutional right. And that decision has also had repercussions on uh, family stability and human sexuality and people's views of that and, and now religious liberty. So if you don't think marriage is relevant just because you're not married, too late. The culture has made it relevant for you. Uh, Your obedience to Jesus may require you to speak truth to the same-sex couple next door um, or instruct a relative in, in your family or contend for what's right when that's not the popular view on campus. As we'll see, our convictions about marriage have great bearing on our adherence to the gospel. So let's get started with this biblical theology of marriage. Um, Carpenters will often speak of cutting against, across the grain in the wood, or along the grain in the wood. And what we're going to do today, we're going to look at marriage along the grain of Scripture along the grain of the Bible's storyline. The church has often divided the Bible's storyline into four movements, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And these four movements are really uh, super helpful in sharing the gospel with others. Uh, They provide answers uh, even to, to, to life's biggest questions. I mean, the question of where did we come from? Enter creation. Why did things go so wrong? Enter the fall into sin. What will make things right? Enter our redemption in Christ. And where is this world heading anyway? Enter the end, the consummation, a new heaven and a new earth. So let's trace marriage along these four movements in the Bible storyline. Let's begin with creation. Where did marriage come from anyway? Why, why does it exist? Genesis 1 recounts God's creation of the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day in particular, He created man and woman in His own image and likeness. And together man and woman were to, to mirror, to reflect God's character in the way that they ruled Uh, the earth, and and related to to one another. Genesis 2 then further details how God created the man and woman. And here we find the origins of marriage. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 18. He's already created Adam, and he's put him in the garden. Let's pick it up in verse 18. 
of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to receive the word with joy in the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So some have argued that marriage is the result of evolutionary processes in biological creatures wherein couples eventually decide it's best to pair up. Others have said that marriage was originally about property rights. Others, it's the result of jealous men and their need for superiority and control. But the Bible provides an altogether different narrative. And even better, it's actually a true one. As God's revelation to us, the Bible teaches that God created marriage. Here we find the original mold, so to speak, that Jesus and the apostles would use continuously to, to point people back to what marriage was about. God fashioned Eve especially for Adam. And God doesn't make mistakes. It's the perfect marriage. There's no shame, according to verse 25, just unity, delight in the other, and perfect order. We even find several good purposes for marriage. In Genesis 1, God had commanded them to populate the earth, so it makes sense that one purpose was procreation. How amazing that God uses people to create more image bearers. But we also find that marriage was for companionship. He says it's not good that the man should be alone. And so God created a helper and brought her to the man. And with companionship comes pleasure, another purpose for marriage. Adam, you see here, rejoices in his wife. He delights in her with poetry, some of which you will find picked up in the Song of Songs later in Scripture. It then says that the two shall become one flesh. In that one flesh union, we find yet another purpose for marriage, covenant faithfulness. Elements of this one flesh union suggest that marriage is more than a contractual agreement before a civil court. It's analogous to a covenant before a holy God. One man and one woman in a sacred union before God. Using this same passage, Jesus said, What God has joined together, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God will also use marriage as a key analogy in his own covenant relationship throughout the scriptures his own covenant relationship with his people. More on that in a minute. 
But that leads us to, to the most significant purpose for marriage that we've yet to uncover. And for this, we, just, we need a little bit of help from another place in the Bible's storyline. Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Paul quotes this text from Genesis 2. In verse 31 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even the very first marriage was about Christ and the church. If you turn in your Bibles back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 4, you will see how this becomes even clearer. It says there that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So even before God created the world, God chose a people for His Son to redeem. In other words, it's not that God created marriage and then said, Hey, this is a great analogy. I'll use it to talk about Christ and the church. No, he created marriage to be the analogy that reflected something he had already planned before the world even existed. God designed marriage between one man and one woman to image Christ's union with his people. Their companionship, their pleasure in each other, their covenant faithfulness to one another. It's all a window through which we look to see something much bigger than the marriage itself. In and through marriage, we get a glimpse of God's purpose for the world to give His people, to give His Son a people. That's what God created marriage for, to, to image Christ's union with His bride, the church. But any of us living in the present know that's not what we experience. Divorce rates are now at 41% in America for the first marriage. For many, marriage amounts to nothing more than a sexual contract designed for self-gratification. And when one's not happy and their dreams aren't met, they seek to dissolve that contract. Some of us have grown up in situations where mom and dad fight all the time or in families where dad left mom behind. And even those of us deeply committed to our marriage still experience conflict. Sometimes we've caused our spouse great pain. We're not naked and unashamed anymore, so to speak. At times the relationship seems full of shame or shaming. So we ask, what went so wrong? That leads us to the next major movement in the Bible storyline. The fall of man into sin and idolatry. The fall of man into sin and idolatry. Genesis 3 shows that despite God's goodness and provision in the garden, both Adam and Eve rebel. So you have a situation where God is the head of Adam. Adam is the head of his wife, and both of them together were to rule over the creatures in their complementary roles. But then there's an attempted coup to stand this good created order upside down. An attempt to reverse God's good order. So you have the crafty serpent. He's more crafty than any of the other beasts. He deceives Eve. She follows the beast instead of her husband. Adam's sitting back quite passively. 
He is not protecting Eve. No, he lets her go, and Adam follows her. And both rebel against God. So instead of trusting God to determine good from evil, they seek to determine good from evil themselves. They take the fruit, they eat, and immediately the consequences of their rebellion settle in. Shame enters the picture. You see them trying to cover themselves in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They try to hide from God in verse 8. The relationship is now strained and before God, Adam blames the woman in verse 12. The end of verse 16 also shows an undoing of the peace that once characterized the relationship. It says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The basic idea here is that she will suffer conflict with her husband. Sin wreaks havoc in the first marriage. And it doesn't take much reading through the Bible to see that sin wreaks havoc in all relationships. But in and beneath all of this, this horizontal damage in the relationships with others, this horizontal brokenness is a brokenness vertically in our relationship with God. Sin separates us from God. God must judge sin because fundamental to all sin is a disregard for God, is a desire to be in the place of the only true God. A desire to elevate the creature over the Creator because we think we know better than He knows. And interestingly enough, the Bible illustrates this idolatry as an unfaithful bride cheating on her husband. You see, to be God's people was to be in a covenant union with Him that was much like a marriage. That was true for Adam in the garden, and it was also true for Israel in the promised land. It's like a garden scenario part two, right? You, God creates Israel to be his people. He puts them in a new garden-like place, the promised land, and he was their covenant husband there. Ezekiel 16, for instance, tells a, a bit of a Cinderella story of God coming to Israel and finding her in a, in a desperate state, dirty and bloody and without hope. Turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Israel is in this desperate state with, without hope. Israel is in the same state that Adam was in after the fall cut off from the Lord in need of His mercy. And, and in His mercy, God cleans up Israel and prepares her to be His bride. Look at Ezekiel 16, verse 8 now. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Think of Think of the garden imagery here that we just went away from. I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. 
What an awesome portrait of our God. What an amazing covenant husband he is to, to so beautify his people for himself. I mean, who in their right mind would want to run away from him? But that's exactly what Israel did. They chased after the idols of other nations. The people cheated on their faithful God with other gods. Drop your eyes down to verse 15, which starts a section of horrible descriptions of what sin and idolatry look like. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. What you get as you continue reading throughout Ezekiel 16 is that Israel was like a serial adulteress. This is what sin does to people. It not only makes us adulterers, people who cheat on God with the creation, it gives us an insatiable craving for more and more and more idolatry. More and more waywardness from the one true husband who offers us the riches of his presence. What happened with Adam in the garden and what happened to Israel in the promised land are portraits of what happens to all of us in our sin. Idolatry ruins our relationship with God and it ruins our relationship with each other. And when that happens, our sin ends up undermining God's perfect design for marriage. Marriage won't rightly image Christ's relationship with his people if we're kicking against the Creator's designs for it in our sin and idolatry. And worse than that, when we kick against the Creator, the Bible says that we become his enemies, objects of his wrath. He will not give his glory to another. He will not tolerate our rebellion. He must punish sin. He must punish us. But give thanks to God, brothers and sisters. The Bible storyline doesn't end there. We move now to redemption. God's redemption in Christ. As we noted earlier from Ephesians, God had a plan in place with Christ even before the, He created the world. Even before Adam and Eve's sin ruined their relationship with God and each other, God had a plan in place to save their relationship with God and each other. And what hope that should give us for our own marriages and for all our relationships, that even before we sinned, God already had a plan in place to save us. We get a hint of this plan as early as Genesis 3.15. Adam failed to protect Eve from the serpent's lies, but God promises a coming offspring that would destroy the serpent altogether. He would be a better husband indeed. Adam should have crushed the serpent's head. He didn't. Christ will. So as the Bible storyline then continues, the prophets give even further hints that God will save his faithless people. Even at the end, if you're still in Ezekiel 16, even at the end of Ezekiel 16, that horrible picture we read earlier, we get this in verse 62 and 63. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. And I want you to stop right there. I want you to get that. You will never open your mouth again because of your shame. 
So we've moved from naked and unashamed in the garden to being ashamed in sin now to never open your mouth again because of your shame. Why? Let's hit the pause button again or play. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So all the guilt and shame before God because of the love affair that we have with idols, says God is taking it all away. Wiped clean, sins forgiven, punishment absorbed, wrath averted forever. This is atonement. Hosea promises a similar hope. Hosea chapter 2. If you want to go there with me, one of the minor prophets. Hosea chapter 2, a little bit further, after, just after you go Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 and most of 2 have talked about, again, Israel's waywardness. She's like an unfaithful bride. But then, in chapter 2, verse 14, we get this. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war, and the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. So it's kind of this idea of bringing them back to an Edenic garden, state, peace, ruling. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 62, verse 4, also gives similar description of this time when God will redeem His people. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. This is God as a husband speaking over his people. My delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. In other words, as the storyline in the Bible progresses, the Old Testament is dishing up the expectation for God to act as a husband who comes to rescue his bride even when she's been unfaithful to him. And it's into that context that Jesus Christ steps in. God Almighty in the flesh. And what do we find Him doing? Where do we find Him first? At a wedding feast. In John chapter 2, what's He doing? Changing the wine and the water into wine. Why? Because He's the true husband who's come to prepare the wedding feast of God's kingdom for the church, His bride. And then in John chapter 3, verse 29, you know, John the Baptist is, is presented as the best man in the wedding. Right? What does John say? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, it's like John the Baptist can hear the wedding bells ringing at the church down the street because the bridegroom is finally here to take his bride. He's just here as the best man to say, to introduce the husband. And so he says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And then Jesus, the husband, what does he do? 
Does he fail his bride like Adam failed Eve? No. Does he flirt with other idols like Israel did to Yahweh? Not a chance. He obeys God all the way, even when it means giving up his life for his unfaithful bride. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us exactly what Christ did for his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's how God makes us right with himself. That's how God welcomes us into his holy presence without condemnation. He pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place. He forgives our sins. He makes us holy through cleansing by Jesus' blood on the cross. Jesus gave himself for us sacrificially at every turn so that he might set us apart for himself, wash us, purify us, and in the end, present us to himself in the splendor of glory. If you want to be clean from all of your wrongdoings, put your faith in Jesus and he will cleanse you from all your sins. He will make you part of his spotless bride. And if you're already trusting in Jesus and all you can see is your sin right now that you are battling, I want you to look again at the trajectory He has you on. This faithful husband that He is. You're not perfect now, but look at where you're going. Ephesians 5, verse 27, that He might present the church to Himself in splendor. And that leads us right into the final movement in the Bible storyline, the consummation of all things. Christ will dress his bride in splendor and will dwell with her forever. Go with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude got to get the context here. This is, he is just depicted in chapter 17 and 18, Babylon, which is the rebellious world, and Babylon is depicted as a harlot, a prostitute. And God has finally conquered the harlot, and now we see, we're going to get a picture of another lady. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, look at chapter 21, verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, bringing together marriage analogy and God's covenant language throughout the scripture that I will be their God and they will be my people. And now down, look down to chapter 21, verse 9. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now don't miss that before reading the rest of the chapter. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he's about to describe a city. But he says here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. What does, he look, what does she look like, John? Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That's what she looks like. In other words... So he's not merely describing a place to go. He's describing a people we will be. We will be the perfected temple where God's presence dwells and beautifies everything. Are your sins making you feel like an ash heap of ruin? God's in the business of turning ash heaps of ruin into temples of holy splendor. So come to him. The Spirit and the Bride say, come at the end of Revelation 22, verse 17. If you're desperate for life and cleansing, and maybe even healing for your marriage, come to Jesus. He's the ultimate husband. He never fails us. He never leaves us nor forgets us. He always loves us. And He will guarantee that we reach the end in splendor. It's only through a relationship with Him that we can be reconciled to God and to each other. Now that's the Bible's storyline. And you can do this with many other themes. It's not just marriage that you can trace like this from Genesis to Revelation. You do it with a host of others. You do it with home and family and peace and justice and temple and all these themes and kingdom. All these themes run throughout the Scripture. But based on the one we just looked at in relation to marriage, let's draw out a few practical theological conclusions for marriage from the Bible's storyline. First, if God has woven marriage into the fabric of the Bible's storyline, then every passage in Scripture applies to marriage, not just the so-called marriage texts. Every passage applies. Paul David Tripp says something similar when he writes this, to the degree that every portion of the Bible tells us things about God, about ourselves, about life in the present world, and about the nature of the human struggle and, divine, and the divine solution, to that degree, every passage in the Bible is a marriage passage. In other words, we can't read the Bible like a reference guide to our problems. It's not a book arranged by topic. It stands together as one whole piece, revealing God to us through His saving purposes in Jesus Christ. The Bible was written so that we encounter God, and so that we, encounter, and so that we satisfy our souls in God. Our marriages, and better, all of our relationships will benefit insofar as we encounter the living God through every word He speaks and not just through the words we select when things go wrong. Every page is a personal encounter with how the true husband plans and thinks and acts and saves and judges for his people's benefit. We need to meet Him here across the pages of Scripture we need to learn Him. We need to walk with Him, satisfy our souls in Him. And then we will know how to live and minister in marriage and in every other relationship as well. Second, if God created marriage and even created marriage to image Christ's union with His people, then we must submit ourselves to His design for it at all costs. We must submit ourselves to God's design for marriage at all costs. The Supreme Court 
and our society may try to impose their own definitions of marriage on the church. They may also eventually penalize us for not compromising our convictions and how they play out in the public square. You look at the news, there's a church in Dallas dealing with this right now who had to uh, exclude somebody from membership because they would not repent and turn away from their same-sex relationships. And the media has posted all kinds of things about it. In a very negative light, of course. So, we must stand firm if this is what God says. To compromise God's design for marriage, one man and one woman in sacred union before God is to compromise what God designed marriage to image, which is Christ's union with his church. It's not a personal preference issue. It is a gospel issue. But we should also be careful to uphold God's design for marriage in the church as well. And that includes a robust vision of biblical manhood and womanhood, faithfulness to our complementary roles in marriage. More on that next week. It includes enduring love when things go wrong at, uh, at, the ho- at home. We not only want to be a people who preach the gospel, but a people who live according to the gospel. Especially in the one flesh union that God has specifically designed to portray the gospel. In other words, the church must not argue for God's vision for marriage in the public square while not living according to God's vision for marriage at home. Third, marriage is not first and foremost about you or your feelings. It's about God and His purpose in Jesus Christ. Marriage is not first and foremost about you and your feelings. It's about God and His purpose in Jesus Christ. Too often we, we, we hear the stories, sadly, that people want divorce because they got tired of their spouse. Um, the so-called chemistry just faded away. They fell out of love. They just lost attraction and on we could go. Praise God that Jesus did not fall out of love with us. We would still be lost in our sins. You see, this kind of reasoning works from the assumption that marriage is an an institution of personal fulfillment. It views marriage as first about me and my personal life goals. And it fails to see that marriage is first and foremost about God and His saving purpose in Jesus. We don't marry to discover perfect compatibility. We marry to image persevering compassion. Yes, there is heartache and pain in in preserving the marriage. But there's also heartache heartache and pain at the center of what Christ did to win his bride to himself. The cross isn't a walk in the park. It includes places like Gethsemane. It includes agony in the service of the beloved. When we sacrifice and give and give some more, sometimes without reciprocation, what we do is we put on display the kind of love that Christ extended to us when we were not worthy of it. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it, it's not the love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains the love. If God designed marriage to image Christ's covenant commitment to His people, even when we didn't deserve it, 
then staying married is about loving our spouse for Christ's sake, even when through times we don't feel like it. Christ's love is what enables our love to continue. Fourth, marriage is a special union, but it isn't everything. Marriage is a special union, but it isn't everything. We witness two extremes in our culture. On the one hand, we have a culture of people embittered about marriage, you know, whether it's the result of bad experiences with marriage or a desire just to live freely without long-term commitments. It's becoming more and more popular to view marriage as a drag, constraining, and not all that sacred. On the other hand, other cultures elevate marriage so high that people hardly feel like they have any worth or value to society or even to the church unless they do get married. The Bible, however, keeps us from making too little of marriage or too much of marriage. It keeps us from making too little of marriage by revealing that it is, in fact, a sacred institution that God created. God created it and designed it for companionship. And unless otherwise gifted for kingdom purposes, it, it really was true that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And most importantly, God created it to be a pointer to something far greater, Christ's union with his people. So this, this helps everybody to respect it to honor it, to, to learn from the living parable that it is before us. At the same time, the Bible keeps us from making too much of marriage. Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, verse 35, that marriage as we know it is not forever. He says, after the resurrection, we'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. I didn't have a problem with Jesus' words until I married Rachel. I thought the kingdom could only be Better if I was married to her. There. I think so much of you that I don't know if I want the kingdom without having her as my wife. And oh, Jesus has sat me down a few times and rebuked me. For that. I can love being married to Rachel, and he has given Rachel to me for my enjoyment, but I best not let our marriage replace the marriage to Jesus. In fact, when I elevate my marriage above my marriage to Jesus, that's usually when things go haywire in our household. So far be it from us to be pessimistic about marriage. And far be it from us to treat non-married people like something is wrong. Maybe Jesus designs some people to skip the, ad, to skip the appetizer of marriage now and go straight for the wedding feast later. That's his business. And under his sovereign, wise control, ours is to love and serve alongside each other with a far better hope. Our identity and our worth isn't found in being married or not. It's found in Christ. Both marriage and singleness will be replaced by our glorious marriage to Christ in the end. And that's where meaning and worth is found. And that should give us patience and enduring and endurance in walking alongside one another until we get there. And finally, marriage shapes our love and our longing for God. Marriage shapes our love and our longing for God. It's not only that the gospel helps us understand what marriage is about, but marriage also helps us understand what the gospel is about, as long as we're understanding it and in terms of the way this Bible presents it. So there's a, there's a reason God created marriage to be a key analogy in describing what our relationship to Jesus is like. 
Our relationship to Jesus is not merely mental assent. Our relationship to Jesus cannot be reduced to a mere act of willpower. Our relationship to Jesus also involves passionate affection and intimacy. Isaiah 62.5. You remember, I just I read it earlier. You shall be called my Delight is in her. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You want to to know where the, the Song of Song, which is basically a way of saying the best love poem ever written, is in your Bible, the Song of Song? That best love poem is there because it comes from God. This is the kind of delight he has in his people, his spouse. Read it. The only place it mentions Yahweh in the Song of Songs is when he talks about love being the very flame of Yahweh. He's the source. In Christ, this is how he has chosen to relate to us. Not just a matter of duty. It is a matter of delight. After taking us from our helpless place, he delights in us now in Christ. And there's coming a day where even the most intimate marriage relationship now will seem like nothing in compared to the intimacy we'll experience with the Lord. And so we long for him to come and bring us to his final dwelling place in the new heaven and earth. That's why we come to the Bible, to listen to our husband speak of his love for his bride. That's why our prayer, that's what our prayer should be like. It's like the the bride waiting on the edge of her seat to walk down the aisle and meet her husband face to face. And the day of splendor couldn't come soon enough. Why don't we pray together?